organizations around accessory dwelling units. Um, you know, in recognizing the benefits of accessory dwelling units for all people within Louisville. ADUs can increase the availability of accessible and affordable housing, and everybody wins in the end. It's a win-win situation. This is the Fern Creek area. We're in the Adams Run neighborhood. All the neighbors are very nice. Yeah. We've been here for 26 years of so my whole life. He's Max, watch football, movies. We try to enjoy our time around each other as much as we can. The original idea for this project was to build a little extension so we could have an outside sitting area for year round. But contractor kind of dashed those hopes. He gave us a good price and I Googled him. He has five stars. Uh, we asked him for his insurance and his license, which he did, he have it. He kind of mapped out the plan, which made us think he was a legit inspector. And at first everything seemed normal. They came out and they got the frame done really quickly. Then they got the roof on really quickly. We were waiting on the windows to come and we noticed the roof started to bow. When we started to kind of question him on that, he started to no-show, he started to not answer calls, texts. Um, and that's when we knew something was wrong. We need to know all the window sizes. I was scared to go to the permit office and bring an inspector here because I was afraid he's gonna tell me take all of it down. They need a more accurate site plan. Mm -hmm. Has that already been provided? We told her the whole situation. They came into our office and we pulled it up and sure enough there was no permit. We were able to come out, look at it to see what, what it was gonna take to see if we can salvage what was here. And he told us exactly what we need to do. When we first visited this, it looked like the whole roof was going to have to come off. Deep inside, I didn't trust any of them. Then we contacted Mark. Yeah, it was pretty scary. When I opened it, the whole window just bowed out. He just had a couple of nails on each side of the window, even holding the, a double window in. We do see this quite often. I hate it for the homeowner because it just costs them more. Contractor was able to save some of the material because they had a lot of money invested in this. My guys were actually afraid to get up on the roof to tear it down. We, we actually supported the roof while we were taking it off. He did an amazing job. He was here on time. He finished it like exactly how we wanted. We had to plumb all the walls because all the walls were either leaning out or in. Put headers above the windows, set the beam on a wall. All the uh, hurricane clips on the, on the rafters, that's wind lift. We're going to do the rough end today to ensure that all the framing is right, the electrical is passed before any drywall insulation is covered in the end of the frame. Bunch of nails in it. Oh, so that's a six inch nail pattern. Check underneath the crawl space. Yeah, you can get back here and look. Oh, there's spiders down here. The homeowner actually did part of the work himself. Did a great job. It was really nice. It's real close to our hearts. I mean, because the homeowners are actually the victims. Make sure you do research on your contractors first. Find a reputable one. Make sure the permit's pulled. If you're suspicious or... Wiffle Ball and Pickleball Leagues are back at Baird Urban Sports Park. Super excited to get a spring league going back in this.
Prince got Metro TV will get started in 60 seconds. Welcome to the Parks and Sustainability Committee. Today is Thursday, February the 23rd, 2023. The time is currently 3.05 p.m. I'm Chairman Ja'Cory Arthur. We also have Vice Chair Marilyn Parker with committee members Philip Baker, Betsy Rui, Jeff Hudson, Khalil Batshawn. Committee members Cindy Fowler and Pat Mulvihill have excused absences. This meeting is being held pursuant to KRS 61.826 and Council Rule 5A. We have two items on our agenda, but we will hold item number two until the next meeting and focus on our discussion with the Louisville Water Company. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, please come forward and we will address current events. Please state your name, title, and company for the record. Thank you, Chairman Arthur. My name is Vince Gunther. I am the Senior Utilities Consultant for Louisville Water, and we greatly appreciate the opportunity to address the committee today to talk about how uh, we responded to the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Uh, I am going to provide a brief overview of Louisville Water, and then with me today also we have Chris Bobay, who's our Manager of Water Quality, and Kelly Deering-Smith, who's the Vice President of Marketing and Communications. So I'm gonna give a quick overview of the water company, just very, very high level. Chris will talk about what our response to the incident was, and Kelly will share some of our communication efforts uh, related to, to this, this, this uh, emergency. So we have this presentation here. 
I'm not. For committee members and the public, the presentation is attached to the agenda. Okay. Louisville Water began in 1860 as Kentucky's first public drinking water provider. Uh, our, our structures are part of the National Historic Landmarks, and most, most importantly, we are the site of where we did the original water filtration experiments, and those experiments resulted in greatly improving water quality, not only here in Louisville, but that was quickly duplicated across the United States. Today we have 420 employees, we maintain over 4,000 miles of water main, and we are the first and only drinking water utility to trademark our tap water, Louisville Pure Tap. On average, we deliver about 120 million gallons of water a day. Water quality is really the core of what we do. We take this responsibility very seriously. In fact, we meet or exceed all Environmental Protection Agency drinking water standards, so it's really paramount to what it is that we do. We have a history of 100% compliance with all drinking water regulations. We also have a commitment to customer satisfaction. Our laboratory is an EPA certified lab. We run over 200 water quality tests a day to assure that your water is safe to drink. We have two of only 19 water treatment plants in North America. So we partner with um, the Partnership for Safe Water. That's a voluntary program where utilities run through a series of processes to, do, to be able to demonstrate that we have excellent water treatment processes. We are certified like through that process. And as I said, we're, we're two. We have two drinking water plants in, in Louisville, and we are two of the 19. We are also recognized through that same process for our distribution water quality. So it's not only important that we treat the water at the plant, but that water then has to go through the 4,000 miles of water main I mentioned to get to people's homes and businesses. And we are certified as an outstanding distribution water quality utility as well. With all that said, this event was a major environmental emergency. And it was certainly uh, serious, and it's still a serious issue for the citizens of the community today. Fortunately, that is a different story uh, for the Ohio River. I'm now gonna turn it over to Chris to talk about our response to this. Before I do, I, I think we should pause on that last, go back to that last image. <clears throat> so that's a, a, a scary photo there. And before we talk about the response of our team and the folks that we collaborated with, um, which was an interstate collaboration, I think it's important that we recognize what What's going on in East Palestine is um, is very serious, and there there were impacted waterways. Um, this is in the border area of Ohio and Pennsylvania, which is what we would consider the upper basin of the Ohio River Basin. So that's the drainage area for the upper river, and just to put it in context, you know that the water's flowing. Um, through several creeks and streams and then hits the Ohio River um, near mile marker 40 on the Ohio River. So if Pittsburgh is zero river mile, this is mile 40 where this comes out. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So why was the Ohio River a different story? I'm going to go into the timeline and the details of how this unfolded over the past several weeks. But I want to start with two main points. Number one, the levels of the chemicals that we saw in the river were never a public health concern. Um, it, the chemicals that were associated with the train derailment were never above levels that, uh, in water that would have exceeded any thresholds for public safety. Um, <clears throat> number two, we never detected any chemicals past Huntington, West Virginia. So that's 300 miles from Louisville on the river. So this was an upper river issue, an upper river emergency response, but 
I'll talk about a little bit why, how that changed and developed over time. So for context, Louisville Water is part of uh, 17 water utilities that collaborate in what we call the ODS network, which is the Organics Detection System. This is a system of instrumentation that's owned by Orsanco, which is an interstate commission, the Ohio River Valley Sanitation Commission. And uh, they fund this program and the operators of the utilities operate the equipment. And this instrumentation allows us to scan and screen for volatile chemicals, just like those that were spilled in the river. Responding to stuff like this is what we do. We are trained professionals. Our water quality team has PhDs, master's degrees. We, we handle this, we train for this, and we do exercises on this, and we collaborate with this network very frequently on this type of training. We have the tools and the expertise in-house to handle a lot of this ourselves, but we do rely on our partners. It would be silly not to. So we, we have maintained a long-standing relationship with upriver water utilities, uh, Cincinnati being our closest peer because of their proximity to, to Louisville, but that's true for all the water systems all the way up to Pittsburgh and downstream for that matter to Evansville, Paducah. I think this map is helpful just to give you um, some visual context of the Ohio River Basin, the yellow dots representing the ODS sites. These are the uh, monitoring stations along the river that where we can detect volatile chemicals. <clears throat> so getting back to the timeline of the spill, there, the train derailment was on February 3rd. If you've read the EPA manifest, um, there was a big train. 50, 50 rail cars, and many of those were, were chemical, you know, containing chemicals, uh, some dry um, materials, but mostly chemicals. Um, so there was a list of chemicals that we were concerned about from the very beginning, but we didn't trigger the emergency response network, the interstate network, until we had our first detection on the main stem of the Ohio River. So like I said, it was a few days before anything released from the train derailment site made it off-site into the tribs, into the tributaries and creeks and streams that feed into the Ohio. And so our first uh, detection of this was at Weirton, West Virginia on February 6th, in the afternoon of February 6th. And this was a, a very low-level detection, right at the level of detection, so the minimum level that we can detect with the instrumentation. To put that in perspective, the chemical that we detected was called butyl acrylate, and that chemical has a health screening level of 560 parts per billion. And we detected it near, in the one to four parts per billion range. So we're, you know, several hundred times lower than any health screening level. Uh, so like I said, that, that detection is what spun everything into motion, and uh, we, we have a, a, a rigid, spill response protocol that we follow with this network um, that includes communications with all the affected parties, all the stakeholders along the river. I chair uh, the committee that's the water advisory, the water users advisory. So we're, we're, we represent uh, the voices of those uh, people that use the water and the primary interest there being public water systems that use the water for drinking water. So that triggered our response. Next slide. So, for several weeks, we've this the response team has been collecting samples, analyzing samples. The ODS stations themselves have been collecting samples and analyzing samples. And from that data set, we based all of our decisions. Um, that's very important, you know, in in the the social media game that was that followed a lot of this. Um, that that we at no time were basing any of our operational decisions um, um, on uncertainties. You know, we had actual folks in the field collecting data and informing our decision-making processes. Um, there were two chemicals that we detected. One was butyl acrylate, as I mentioned. It was the highest level detected, so it became our primary chemical of concern. Um, there were a few others that um, we, we we're concerned from a point of view of uh, degradation. 
Um, one of them was ethyl hexyl acrylate. But in the early going, the focus was on getting the instrumentation to be able to, uh, the methods that we run to detect these and quantify these levels. So the focus um, for all the ODS stations was knowing where to look for these chemicals and how to quantitate them on the instrumentation. So once the water moved into our river pool, um, and for some context there, we're in the McAlpin pool because of the McAlpin locks and dams. Um, it, uh, the next pool up is the Markland pool. And so we like to control and know what's going on in our pool at all times. And so as this thing, as the water moved downstream, um, like I said before, there were no detections of the chemicals um, after the first few days, but we still wanted to track that water um, for any potential remnants of any chemicals that would be in that water. And as that water entered our pool, uh, we were prepared to do um, frequent monitoring in collaboration with Orsenco and other upstream utilities. And it's important to note that none of the, none of the water that was sampled um, coming into our pool had any detections of these chemicals. And then based on uh, river flow predictions, forecast of um, uh, precipitation in the area, you know, things changed quite dramatically in the middle of this event. And this thing, um, the water associated with the upper river where there were detections pushed through Louisville um, on February 20th, uh, Monday, um, you know, uh, around 10 a.m. So I, I do want to say two things about this. Uh, I think it's important. And, and the way I've been framing this is I, I think of this as these are two blessings um, that we received in this event. Number one. Uh, the weather conditions in the first week of this spill, we had uncharacteristically high uh, temperatures, ambient temperatures where we had warm weather, and we had really low flow conditions in the river. And so in terms of degradation, natural biodegradation of these chemicals, which are easily biodegradable, um, that's a really good thing. And so we had uh, almost a week of upper river biodegradation. And then we had rains late in the first week, Thursday, Friday, that rapidly accelerated the river, and a lot of that extra flow pushed this thing out quickly. And so, um, you know, that was a one-two combo that was that was really, really good for for water quality of the river. We've been really transparent, or tried to be as transparent as possible with the the data that we have collected. Um, it's all been published on our website and. Kelly's going to talk about some of that, but I, I just wanted to put this in the slide deck to show you that um, from the moment this entered our pool uh, until now, and we're still continuing to monitor, um, the column on the far right is all of our VOC monitoring, which VOC stands for Volatile Organic Chemicals, and they're all non-detects. We haven't seen any detections of any of the chemicals associated with the train derailment, and that's just a testament to the river the river system itself. Um, the rain not only moved it through faster, but it also gave us a tremendous amount more dilution, even though we weren't detecting anything. Um, even low-level uh, remnants of this chemical were diluted out. So yeah, I'll hand it over to Kelly for the remainder. Thank you, Chris. I hope that you can see now that my job as managing the communications for Louisville Water Company is to take all this science and make it relevant and relatable and easy to understand. Um, so to give you a snapshot of how our communications work, we knew about the spill, as you heard from Chris, very early on. Um, our first customer question actually came in through social media. On February 10th, we responded that we were monitoring, didn't see this as a big, a, a big public health concern. Um, but by Monday, February 13th, that was different. We began to receive a lot of media calls. And Louisville Water Company, um, I stand by being authentic, transparent, proactive. And so we did our first media briefing, community briefing, on February 13th. And that coincided, which I hope that all of you saw it, information that came to you. Um, you are an important part of delivering stakeholder communication along with the uh, Louisville Metro Public Health Department and, and others here. We have provided regular updates through February 21st. We actually posted our last website story of the week probably on this response um, just a couple days ago. 
But, but what I want to give you a sense of, and I, and I, think, I think you all know this, we are, we are living in a different time. It's such a scary thing with an environmental emergency. And so this has been a crisis, and I've been at Louisville Water for almost 24 years, like nothing I've managed through before from a risk communication perspective. Um, I w the reason I wanted to show you the media sentiment here, on the right-hand side, you can see how we measure traditional media coverage. And so this is our local news, who we really depend on to get information out. And they did a great job. You can see it's mostly neutral or positive. Not a lot of sensationalism with a story like this, which is what we want to see. On the next slide, I want to show just a couple of screenshots of social media. I am a huge proponent of using social media as a way to deliver our message. I have a, a 21 and a 25-year-old, and they will never watch TV, nor, unfortunately, will they probably pick up the hard copy of a newspaper. So if I want to get a message to them, I have to be on social media. And I think you all know that as well. Unfortunately, though, social media can also be a place of misinformation, rumors, people who perhaps don't read the entire story, and that is what happened here. Um, and so you can see how quickly people seeing something in Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, it translates to the Louisville message. So we've spent a lot of time over the past week answering questions such as, why aren't you doing what Cincinnati is doing? Or why don't we see this? Why aren't you doing that action? And as you heard from Chris, what works for one water system doesn't necessarily work for us. And so trying to put that in context for the community is something that isn't always easy. Um, we do have good ambassadors, and I appreciate those folks on social media um, who chose to chime in. Many of them were you, and I, and I do appreciate your endorsement. The last slide, and then I think we're going to open it up for your questions. Um, just want to bring all this together. We are the drinking water utility for about a million people. But I don't like the word utility sometimes because we're in the business of public health. We have the community's health in the palm of our hands. We are an anchor in this community for each and every one of us to do what we need to do. And we take that extremely seriously. So every day, we're doing what today, what we've been doing every day since 1860, and that's testing your drinking water and making sure it's high quality. Um, we are now at the point where we're helping other utilities that are downstream. So Chris's team is sharing that information. What are we finding? More importantly, what are we not finding? But what do you need to be prepared for in terms of the community's questions? Um, so I know we're gonna take questions. I mean, I wanna applaud Councilman Arthur for inviting us today. Um, we love talking water quality and certainly want to be proactive in how we do it. Um, and we want to be transparent too. So at this point, um, ask away. You have, you have the experts here. Thank you so much again for being here. Um, I know you put out so much information, but sometimes for folks it's just better to break that down, water it down, talk about it a little bit more. Uh, we have a few people in the queue, but I'll start off just by asking I know you talked about a specific chemical that you tested for that was detected hundreds of miles away. Is there a list that the public can see as far as what chemicals that you were concerned about or could be concerned about, you know, even if it's not that and it's not detected? Do we know what we're, what we're concerned about chemical-wise? Yes, um, I would refer anyone who's interested in that EPA uh, has an extensive website on the East Palestine train derailment. So if you just Google that and EPA, it'll take you straight to their site. There's also Ohio EPA has the same thing, and Orsanco has the same thing, O-R-S-A-N-C-O. So there's three other websites other than ours where you can get, um, the EPA site has the full manifest of the, the rail cars, what they contained, uh, what their condition assessment was um, when the first responders arrived, and and perhaps more information on the uh, there's there's information on the cleanup, what they've done uh, throughout the process. I honestly haven't been tracking the actual on scene cleanup that closely because we've been in Ohio River spill response mode for the last couple of weeks. Um, but I know that that work still continues. They removed a lot of soil and they've taken a lot of mitigation actions that are really important for folks to know about. Um, but a list of the chemicals, uh, can, you, can, you can get a list of chemicals from that manifest. Um, like I said before, there was 50 rail cars or so, but I think there were probably 
10 different chemicals or so that were released to the environment in some form or fashion. Most of them um, were, uh, to use their phraseology, um, most of the rail cars were pierced and flared, which means um, they were drained and burned. Um, so a lot of the chemicals were um, obviously burned off and that was a lot of the concern over the airborne exposure. Um, so there were a few though that were released, potentially released on site, which means they could have gotten into waterways and, and those were the ones we were most concerned about. A quick follow-up and then we'll jump to committee members. So a concern that I'm hearing from the public is uh, the water company is saying we don't detect X, but are you testing for other chemicals that potentially spilled or are you waiting until it's detected elsewhere and then you decide to test for it? No, uh, we, we, we monitor every single day for this family of volatile chemicals and without going into details of the methodology, we have instrumentation that allows us to screen for anything in that entire family. So we're also calibrated for up to 30, 35 of those compounds so we can quantify what those levels are. But even for the compounds that we don't, the ones we're calibrated for are the ones we most commonly um, see spill reports on things that we know are in the basin. Uh, this is a major transportation corridor in a heavily industrialized you know, part of the states. So there's a, fam there's a family of 30 to 35 that we, that we are calibrated for and we can quantify, but we're, we have a, a library of thousands of these chemicals that we can screen for, and so we can detect the presence or absence of chemicals in that family. That's, that's what we get by running this particular method, if that helps. Thank you. Committee Member Hudson. Thank you, Chairman Arthur. Um, my, my, my question is for Mr. Bobe. Am I pronouncing that right? Bobe. Bobe. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. Um, so my, my concern, and I appreciate all of the testing and all of the monitoring that has been done during this event. Uh, I know that's, that's not an easy thing uh, to get through. Uh, but my concern is more uh, down the road, uh, six months, nine months, 12 months down the road once the news cycle has expired from this story. Um, some of the chemicals biodegrade through evaporation and, and part of them have passed through, as you said, that, that lump in the snake went past Louisville two days ago. Um, but some of the others settle into the riverbed upstream. Um, and as you know, the Ohio River is a major intercommerce waterway that dredging operations are continuously uh, operated on the river. Is there a way um, that you get communicated when dredging operations are happening that would stir up a bloom of the chemicals that have settled into the riverbed so that you, you're looking for it before the next lump in the snake comes to Louisville? Yeah, my, my first reaction was gonna be we have the continuous monitoring in place through the ODS system uh, to keep our eye on that ball. That's important that we don't stop looking. And, and I think of it more in terms of surveillance rather than monitoring, right? We're, we're looking for things that shouldn't be there. And we won't stop doing that. But to your point about dredging operations, that's a really good point. Um, through Orsanko, because they're an interstate commission that is governed and ran by the state authorities, each state, uh, each basin state having membership on the commission, uh, we have access to permits um, uh, requests for dredging operations uh, that affect the main stem of the river. And that allows us to have a window into um, commenting on permits as well as just general awareness of the operations that might be approved for the main stem. So I think there are mechanisms in place for that notification. And if, but certainly even if an operation like that were to, um, to continue, um, if there was a resulting release of a chemical that may have been embedded in the sediments, as you said, um, there, I think there's reassurance knowing that we have the 17 monitoring stations continuously running to, to be able to detect anything that shouldn't be there. And that, that would trigger a whole nother round of spill notifications and emergency response when we, if we were to see something like that. All right, Th thank you for that response. And can, can I ask that a control loop be put in place such that when a 
dredging operation is conducted upstream that that you ask to be notified so that you're you know, extra alert to to a, a balloon that might be stirred up. Yeah, I, I think that's a good comment. And uh, actually, Spencer Bruce, who's president of Global Water Company, is a member of or cycle, a member of the board. Um, and so I think we can take that request to Orsanko and, and see what type of procedures could be put in place to notify all the utilities along the Ohio River Basin of those type of events. Thank you so much. That's all. Thank you. You mentioned Cincinnati earlier and how we're different. We don't have to do what other uh, companies do. Could you just give us a quick, this is why, just to break that down? Because people can assume, but we need to hear from the experts. Why did Cincinnati shut down temporarily and we did not? Yeah, um, Cincinnati's uh, plant is designed differently than ours. And they have, from reports I've received, two to three days of uh, raw water storage, which would be untreated water storage. Um, that gives them, uh, the, the affords them the opportunity to be able to shut down their intake for a period of time. Um, for us, we don't have that type of storage in Louisville. Um, and so knowing that we can't shut down we have to be able to treat everything. That's why the research in the early going into what our treatment response is gonna be and what treatment you know, is effective was critically important. And to have the instrumentation in place to be able to monitor for these chemicals and to be able to do tests, run tests to see what treatment is effective is also important. So all of that I was talking about earlier with the instrumentation and, and the testing research that we did um, couldn't have happened if we didn't have um, the equipment and the instrumentation and the scientists to be able to do that. So for us, it's, uh, it's primarily carbon is our treatment strategy, and that's EPA's um, recommended um, treatment mechanism, treatment technology for organic spills, and carbon is pretty much used by all the river systems, all the systems along the river, and that's, that's what we did. And we've been feeding carbon, we're still feeding carbon just as a, out of an abundance of caution, even though we didn't see anything, um, we just want to make sure that we have multiple barriers in place for protection of water quality. Committee Member Baker. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I know that you, uh, one, thank you all for being here and being uh, forthright uh, uh, for your efforts, but you, you talked about uh, on the front end, one of the preventive e efforts was uh, you were pumping additional carbon into the water along the waterway. Is there any other, uh, for the public, what are some of the other preventative um, things? Because I think we all can agree uh, from what I'm hearing is that we dodged the bullet. Is that, that's what we're kind of hearing as far as, it could be a lot worse is, is, is my take. That you guys have uh, preventative measures where it has not come down uh, stream yet, okay? So in the fact that um, what efforts are we putting in place now that if East Palestine, Ohio, is Louisville, Kentucky, uh, what efforts are we going? Are we are you guys furthering uh, doing uh, to work with whether it be working with the EPA or working uh, with the, your facilities itself going forward? So, so I'll I'll let Chris address how effective carbon is at treating these types of spills. Thank you. I I, I would I would couch uh, the incident a little bit differently because I don't believe we dodged a bullet. I think this particular incident was easy for our water quality team to manage. Um, there have been other spills on the Ohio River and we have the treatment strategy in place, whether that spill is in East Palestine, Ohio, or whether it's uh, at the confluence of, Ash, of, of, of the Kentucky River that comes in you know, uh, closer to our, our intakes. And the primary strategy that we have in place, again, for all of these types of incidents, would be the use of carbon, which is incredibly effective at that treatment. And, yeah. Yeah, we're fortunate, given that we can't shut down, um, or if we, you know, we, we have to have multiple, uh, we call them stages of carbon treatment. And the reason is, it goes to the mechanism of how carbon works. So carbon is activated charcoal. So it's heated up, it's very porous it actually physically removes organic chemicals through, through charge. Most organic chemicals are negatively charged and they absorb to the physical media of the, 
of the activated carbon. And so for water systems, on, like on a river system, where you might encounter contaminants like this, every stage of carbon treatment gives you greater than 90% removal. So in Louisville, we have three stages of carbon treatment. So we can feed carbon at three different places in sequence in our process. So we can get 90% removal in the first wave stage, 90% removal in the second stage, 90% removal in the third stage. And so that affords us um, a, a, a great ability to physically remove contaminants that are at really high concentrated levels, not anywhere close to what we saw with this particular incident. So we're feeding carbon out of, out of precaution now, but if it were to be much worse, as you say, like we would still have the capacity to treat that effectively. And, okay. we, and we have additional data to, you know, for process water so that we can back that up with actual numbers, right? We're not, if, if there was a reason to feed carbon, then we would have both the untreated without carbon numbers and the treated carbon, the treated numbers to, to show the removal. It's important for us to track that. I, I thank you. Um, I used Dodge the Bullet for a reason, and you answered just like I wanted you to. And the reason why I said that, um, say for, for the senior or the person who has nothing to do about chemicals and concern that, uh, let's just say they have a high school diploma, can you break it down just for the general public where we are in the process of this, of East Palestine, Ohio? Because as you said, social media, public, you have two sides of the spectrum, right? So when, when the average person is listening to us, sometimes it comes across, and this is not even necessary for me, that hey, we're, we're safe. You know, they say the water's uh, good to drink, we dodged a bullet, as I, I said. Right. Um, and I wanted you to say that so our general public knows uh, just more of a clarity of where we are in the process. If you could make it a little more layman's yeah. where we are in it, uh, in the process. Thank right. you. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's any consolation, my daughter who lives in Washington, D.C., asked me if there was a concern. So I, I get it. It's it's real. So so where we are in the process, there's a couple things I want to back up on what Chris said is the Ohio River is this amazing, long, wet interstate highway. There are barges every day going up and down. There are farmers that do work. There is industry along the river. And so when something happens in Huntington, driving it, yeah, you can get there pretty quickly. But think about the water that travels. So to kind of put it in perspective, every day if you stood on the banks of the Ohio River, 75 billion gallons of water are going by us every day. 75 billion. Yesterday, Louisville Water pumped 110 million gallons of water. So the river is a huge advantage for us when it comes to a spill, especially when you're talking about diluting that spill. And the river flow, when Chris talked about the rain and talked about the dry weather, those are huge advantages for us. Um, the other point that he made about just adjusting that treatment strategy, um, there is a playbook for this, and it changes almost hourly. And so, you know, based on what Cincinnati's doing, you know, our scientists may have had to make that decision to say, do we want to control the flow of water that's coming into the plant? Maybe just for a little while, because it's, we know it's going to pass really quick. Um, but this is what that team does every single day. So, you know, I do think, has it raised awareness of water quality? I hope so. Um, has it raised awareness of just the value of the Ohio, the Ohio River? I, I really hope so. So hopefully that helps put it into context. Um, Maybe for some people, they love the science. Some people, they just want to know, can I drink the water? And the answer to that is yes. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Vice Chair Parker. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you guys for being here. Um, so just for layman's terms, as we go back to Councilman Baker, uh, is the brunt of the spill past us? And how long will you continue to monitor? Did I hear you say that you continue to monitor indefinitely for particulate matter just like this? And then if you can real brief, briefly address the carbon when it bonds with those negative ions or whatnot, how do you filter that out 
I mean, does all that get filtered out? And if it doesn't get filtered out, what does that carbon do if we drink it? Yeah. Well, I'll take the first part and let Chris answer the carbon. So in layman's terms, how I would say it, we are done with this spill as of today with what we know. Um, any water that could have contained any remnants from that derailment went by Louisville on Monday. It's, it's gone, it's downriver. That, that water is past Louisville. Now, does that mean we stop monitoring? Absolutely not. We do monitoring every single day for that family of VOCs of which these chemicals were part of. There are 30 that we actively look for and that, that our instruments are, are calibrated to measure. But if we get a blip on something else upriver, that's when Chris's team goes into action to say, hey, what is that? And, and do we need to use carbon? And then to your question of if we do use carbon, what happens after we soak all that stuff up? Um, I'll, let Car I'll let Chris address more of that treatment question for you. So, so it, and I think, the, and I was just looking over at Chris's, over my shoulder at Chris, and so the, the carbon is filtered out through our, our normal treatment process. So it's, it, it doesn't remain in the finished drinking water. We use carbon a lot for taste and odor control. If you think about um, the refrigerator a little bit, that's the easiest analogy I can get. It's not exactly the same, but if you have a filter on your refrigerator, you're doing it a lot of times for, maybe you don't particularly like the taste or, the, or your home plumbing you have some concerns about. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a treatment strategy for us as well. Thank you. Good question. All right, I'm gonna take us home with just a few more questions. Right. Uh, one is about the data you put out, which I'm sure everyone appreciates seeing some of that raw data. The recent update on your website that shared those tests uh, between February the 3rd and February the 21st, uh, it appears, again, there's no real differences in terms of the water quality. You're not detecting any of the chemicals. Your quality reports show that you have on average about 200 tests per day. The test you shared online uh, we see a couple dozen on February the 20th, about a dozen on February the 19th, three tests on February 21st, and less tests for other dates. Where could the public see raw data showing results from the hundreds of tests that are happening daily? So there's, there's one thing that you can easily do today. Um, you can go to louisvillewater.com, you can click on water quality, and you can click on the annual water quality report. So. Louisville Water, every public drinking water provider is required every year by the Environmental Protection Agency to produce a report card. It's called the Consumer Confidence Report. We give it to you by July 1st every year. You'll, you'll see it in your bill. That report contains the required testing by the Environmental Protection Agency of all the hundreds of thousands of things we're required to test for. What do we detect and at what levels? And did we have a violation? and we do not have any violations at Louisville Water. So when Chris talks about those hundreds of tests, some of them are required by the EPA, and you can see a summary of the data in that report. Some of the other things we test for on a regular basis are not necessarily regulated, but they're aesthetic. We do a taste test every day at Louisville Water. We do an odor test. The, the, the perception of our water quality is really important to us. I think, Councilman, if you have a particular question about the larger list, I think Chris's team would be happy to share that with you. It will be massive though, yeah. So what we do on the website is we provide the summary in terms of the water quality report. And, and just so you know too, there are a lot of businesses in Louisville, especially in the food and beverage or even in industry that need a very specialized water quality report. Maybe they need to make sure the recipe of our water is good for their manufacturing. We actually have a long list of customers who our water quality team works with on a regular basis to give them that data. So we'll, you know, it's, it's, there's one mass data that the public can see. A lot of our customers, especially on the commercial side, they have very individual needs and we work with them on, a, on an individual basis. Understood, and I'll follow up to see if we can get all that data. So the second question is around um, outreach and communications in the timeline. The spill happened February the 3rd. You said your first customer question didn't come in until February the 10th. Mm -hmm almost a week later, and then your first community briefing was February the 13th, yeah. and that was also when Metro Council received an email from Brother Vince over here. So I personally heard about this on Twitter, that was the first time I saw it, and it was like just filled with rumors. 
So my ask would be that when something like this happens, we don't wait 10 days later to have a, a press yeah. briefing because at that point, you got a bunch of rumors, a bunch of misinformation floating around and people are terrified. Yeah. You know, our water, we use it all day, every day. So I'm just hoping that in the future, we can make sure that we're proactive and not reactive to mm -hmm. the public that's spreading rumors. There's two takeaways I have from this, and, and I'll, I will acknowledge that I knew about the spill February 3rd or 4th because I get the daily reports from our water quality team. We see reports every day, and this one didn't raise an eyebrow. Um, you heard Chris say it was never a public health concern for us. However, knowing what I saw on Twitter now and going back, it's always easy to go back and reflect, I think we could have been more proactive. Now, would it have stopped the rumors? I have no idea, but I think we are the trusted source for water quality and our community deserves to hear from us. The other thing I think that is a lesson learned for us is the power of numbers and data. We can tell you that it's safe to drink and we know based on research that our customers trust us but in a case like this, the data led to clarity for so many people. And so with that regard, I think we could have shared Chris's water quality data even sooner than we did. Um, we still got questions when we shared it and I can't make everybody happy, but I think being transparent a little bit earlier could have helped as well. Um, so on that, you know, for any of you, we want to make sure we never break the community's trust um, I know all of you do either coffee with your constituents, you host public meetings, you're out walking in the community, you have schools in your neighborhood, you have churches in your Boy Scout groups. Invite us. We have a whole education and outreach team. We will meet with your community. Um, we will bring hands-on experiments. Of course, we'll bring Louisville Pure Tap bottles and we'll make sure you're drinking water. But we want to make sure that you feel confident in the work we do every day. And it's free, so drink up, and right. the programming is free. Yeah. Right. Thank so you. The only thing I was going to just add real quickly, thank you for that question, because one of the things that we're going to do both with the water quality team and with Kelly's communication team is do a, a debrief uh, of this incident, right? Mm -hmm. What did we do well? What could we do better? And I do think, as Kelly mentioned, one of the things that we can do better is being a little bit more proactive on that social media front. Yeah. We appreciate that. I had folks hit me up saying record a video you drink in the water like Obama or something. It yeah. was crazy. Uh, so my last piece is just tell us where people can, you know, call, email, yeah. Facebook. What's the best way for people to get questions answered from the water? So if you ever have a question about Louisville water, whether it's water quality or something you saw in the community, um, you can go to our website. There are several options to send us an email, whether it's an education or a customer service related question. I think you all know by now we're active on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So you could also tag us there. Um, and now you have all of our contact information, so if there's a way that we can help you out, please don't hesitate to ask. All right, thank you all so much. I don't see anyone else in the queue going once, going twice. Just going. thank you all for being here. Yeah. All right, thank you again. We'll be back in a couple of weeks talking about another utility. Right. So we're adjourned, peace. Thank you very much. Thank you.